This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month. And for it, our own Alex Cortez attended something called a buddy walk, which are community walks alongside Americans who have Down syndrome to promote acceptance of them and their inclusion into society. It was created by the National Down Syndrome Society in 1995, and there are now over 250 of them across the country. And this buddy walk in our town of Oxford, Mississippi, that Alex attended was organized by a local support group called 21 United. And here's Alex's conversation with a father there named Brad Armstrong. Okay, so I've got three kids. Uh, They're now 15, 13, and 5. Aubrey is my Down syndrome child. She's 13. So it was an adjustment. Having a two-year-old at home and kind of thinking you have it you have it licked. You're used to what the, you know, what the what the average kid is like. Uh, you, so you have you think kid number two. All right, second verse, same as the first. We're going to keep going, and uh, and you know we had had all the, the normal tests and everything just to make sure. Hey, is my baby healthy? Yeah. Everything that they really recommended, and uh, everything came back negative. And you know, and she was born and at birth. I didn't know, but my wife is a nurse practitioner. Okay. She could tell real quick that something was off couldn't quite tell what it was and uh, just the you know physical appearance of the baby and uh, eyes a little farther set apart and things like that some of the some of the physical characteristics that you might think with you might associate with down syndrome and uh i was clueless it's like perfect you know i'm counting i'm counting fingers and toes i'm making sure everything's in the right place and we're good to go you and actually count fingers and toes oh yeah absolutely i've had three kids i don't think i've ever counted fingers and toes <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, you make sure everything's in place and we're good to go and had no idea. And then, you know, the doctor came in and told us and said, look, we've noticed some things and, you know, kind of sat us down and had a heart to heart and said, your your child has Down syndrome. And it was, it was an intense two or three days of, you know, <laughs> supporting your wife and walking outside and crying with your dad for 30 minutes and then walking back inside like nothing happened and supporting your wife. You weren't crying in front of her. Trying not to, no. Uh, I think the biggest part of the faith piece is the acceptance piece that, you know, you you have your two or three days of saying, why me or why us? And and then you realize, I'm not in control of that. So I can sit here and be bitter or grumpy or whatever but I, I think that's where the faith piece really probably comes in more than anything and it's just understanding that hey this is a this is a big thing that you're not in control of so let's adapt let's roll let's keep moving in the positive direction and, and I think I became a, a Down syndrome expert in a month and a half and, you know you read everything you could get your hands on and you know it was before the days of the the Google and whatnot, you know. You, this you, was you, before the days of Google? Oh, I mean, she's 13, so, I mean, they, they had it, but it's not the, the monster that it is today. So yeah. you really had to go do research, and I, re- I, you know, bought a lot of books and read a lot of books and checked books out from the library. And oh, wow. We had people uh, from a society a lot like 21 United that dropped in when we were there, and it, it's one of those things you don't really want to hear all that information at that time because you, your child's only two or three days old, but... They gave us this book of, hey, things to be aware of, you know, things to, when you go out in the community and you start your kid in school, you start getting therapy for your kids or whatever it is, 
you know, these are things you need to be aware of. And I, I think that was very valuable for, for us. And I think at that particular time, we didn't want to hear it. You know, you're not, not so much in denial, but you're just still trying to adjust. But I think that's probably the best thing that ever happened to us is somebody gave us a book and gave us this information and said, hey, if you have questions, you can reach out. And I think that's what, you know, something like this is for, to raise community awareness to start, but also to kind of spread the message for people who have a kid who has special needs of any sort. But, you know, this particular event's Down Syndrome specific and let them know that they have somebody in the community, that they have questions. You know, I've, my daughter's 13. A lot of the kids that are involved with this particular chapter are younger. So we've been through things that they're about to go through. So, you know, but you know, we, we had that when we – we're originally from Jackson, so we were members of the Central Mississippi Down Syndrome Society. Bigger town, you had a bigger selection of people who were – you know, members that you could go to. So you did have that, you know, kind of like I'm able to answer questions for them now if they have it because I've got an older child. We had that as well. And, you know, there were times you didn't use it all the time, but it was nice to know that if you did have questions, you had someone that was there that you could get a response from. And maybe at least, you know, maybe it's just to tell you you're barking up the wrong tree. You're going to let that go. You can keep fighting it, but it's not going to change. This is what you need to focus on. You know, there's a percentage of these kids that have parents that really are active and fight and try to get everything they can for them. And But there's a large percentage of kids with Down syndrome or with special needs that don't really have that parental, you know, fight to go get things for them. They kind of accept things just as they are. And I think that's what these groups are also about is to to push the boundaries, to push for more, you know, whether it's rights or anything like that. I mean, we haven't really had to fight for that. But uh, the, the community acceptance here in Oxford has been fantastic. I mean, it's really, really good. I, our our daughter, again, 13 years old, but she's kind of like a, a superstar in town. We can't go anywhere to eat without knowing someone who wants to come to the table and say, hey, or... Not to you. Or Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't even introduce myself as Brad. I'm just Aubrey's dad now. And that's... They're like, oh, Aubrey, I, I know her. Yeah. So she, she goes to my school. Normal, typically able classroom? And- yes. So she's, she's pulled out a little bit, um, but she's mainstreamed as much as we can. We've yeah. tried to mainstream her. Uh, when we were in Jackson, we were fortunate enough to get her in... Uh, first Presbyterian Day School, who had a Down Syndrome-specific class. And there were, uh, I want to say, maybe eight, nine kids in it total. But I think that one of the things that I noticed about that, that I didn't think about going into, I thought that it was a great program for these kids with special needs that all kind of had the same disability, and it was going to be a really good program for them, which it was. But I think what I noticed on the back end of it, after having been in it a little while, is how much it affected the other kids that went to that school. The normal kids that interacted with them daily. You know, growing up, when I was coming up, a special needs kid was kind of pulled out of the fray and removed, and we had no interaction with them. So, you know, the tendency for the kids, the normal kid in school that doesn't see that, is to think, oh, well, that's weird and different, and, you know, and it's just so much different in today's society. And I think that's because people have fought for this to, hey, we need to do it a different way. Maybe the way of just secluding them over here in this corner of the school is not good anymore and when we come back more on the buddy walk in our little town of oxford mississippi national down syndrome awareness month and we were just listening to brad armstrong's story his superstar daughter's story aubrey here on our american stories
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Brad Armstrong, the father of a beautiful daughter named Aubrey, who has Down syndrome. It changes your life, and in many ways, it changes your life. You've got more things, more responsibilities, you know, she's likely going to have to live with us her whole life, you know, so it changes the, the aspirations of, hey, I've got, I'm going to have kids, and they're going to be with me for 18 years, and then they're going to go to college, and then they're going to be out on their own, right? Uh, you, you have to kind of let that go a little bit and say, hey, you know, I want her, hopefully that's a problem we get to face, you know, where she's able to go out and live, you know, on her own as much as she can. And we want that to happen, but there's a chance she's going to live with us for her whole life. So um, I've met some parents who say um, that they are going to go to college. They are going to get married. At least have those expectations, you know, such a high bar that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a lot of other parents say, yeah, they're going to live with me the rest of my life. And a lot of them. Have, I've heard from many people their greatest concern is, you know, making sure that you live one day longer than that child or one yeah. hour longer than that child and making sure that, you know, someone's there for them is, yeah. their, is their greatest fear in life. So how do you kind of deal with all this and your expectations? So she's one of three kids. I think you do the best job of raising those other two kids in a way to understand, you know, that not everybody is the same as you, that, you know, we've taught our daughters that, that Aubrey's brain works differently. Now, I treat her just like my other two kids. <laughs> I know when, that she knows when she's messing up, and she'll do it on purpose. But other people will give her a pass and say, oh, well, she's just, you know, that's Aubrey. Just let that go. And I have to hold her to a strict line for her. But I really also do that for my other kids to let them know that, hey, this, she can think for herself. She can do for herself. She does know. But at some point, she's your sister. And, like, her older sister, uh, Ann Michael, She's very protective. She's like, you know, the mama hen. She's going to make sure she's taken care of. Now, she can fight with her, but nobody else can, right? So it's you have to do a good job and know that, you know, I'm not in control of if I live longer than her or not. I mean, I could I could worry about that, I suppose, but I'm not in control of that. So um, I have to make sure that if I'm not here, if I'm not able to be here, that I've got other things in place to make sure that she's going to be taken care of. And I have no doubt. I, there, there are people around this community that would adopt her tomorrow if, if they had to. Now, I don't think they fully understand what that means. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk them out of it. But, you know, I have no doubt that she would be taken care of. If, if, you know, if Holly and I weren't here tomorrow, she would be fine. And the rest of my kids would be fine. And I think that's all you can do. But I don't think that's any different than any normal parent. Sure. In the end, she's a normal kid. She's different. But she's different in so many good ways. I wish that I had her attitude. I, w- I mean, she will come up to you. She'll shake your hand. She'll tell you she loves your shirt, ask you your name. I mean, she is literally the most personable person I have ever met. And I've met a lot of people. She's unreal. She, You've heard the phrase, you know, I don't know what it is, but she's got it. <laughs> yep. You'll see. She's walking it. Hi. Hey, Aubrey. I'm Alex. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Your dad's been praising you a lot. He's singing your praises. Yeah, I was doing something really cool. <laughs> I mean, that's that fills you up with pride as a parent. You'd love for I'd love to be that way. I'd love for all my kids to be that way. Honestly, uh, I was the shy kid in high school that never wanted to talk to people. Even if I knew you real well, I wasn't going to open up that much. Uh, a lot of people thought, you know, hey, this guy's stuck up or a snob, and I was just shy. I literally just didn't want to talk to people because I didn't know what to say. I was always going to call them the wrong name. I'm horrible <laughs> with names. 
But in having her, Aubrey has opened up my personality because I don't have any option. If she's there, she's talking to everyone, so then I have to interact all the time. So me today versus me 13 years ago, complete different a complete different person. I mean, I, as far as personable, talking to people, going up and meeting people, yeah. I'm a lot more apt to do that. Now, part of that's because I'm older and I'm growing up and I've worked in business and you learn these things, but part of it's because I didn't have an option. And she's supposed to be the different one. You're the one right? different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, I mean, there, there are things about her personality that if I could just take and implant in myself, I would do it tomorrow. You know, we've met so many people we never would have met if we, you know, didn't have her. We have relationships with people that we never would have had were it not for her. The De Leons came to mind. They're a family that we met basically through our our nanny, our, our babysitter slash nanny. Uh, she worked for us all the time. She was actually a student teacher at the school that we went to in Jackson. And then she started coming over to the house after school. She started coming over to the house after school and keeping the girls for a little bit, and then she'd keep them whenever we'd go to an event or something like that. But she ended up coming over a lot. Like, even when we didn't necessarily need her, need her we wanted to kind of keep her busy and keep her because she was so good with the girls. She just she came from a really good family. They really had a heart for it, you know, taking care of special needs and being, you know, mindful of that. She was in college at Bellhaven. She played soccer at Bellhaven, but when she in her free time, she would come help us. And so her parents come to town to watch her play soccer, and they want to meet us. It's the first thing they want to do because all they've done is heard about Aubrey. And they're just fantastic people as well. And they, you know, now they come to town. They're coming, they actually are going to come up here and they want to have, you know, time with the girls. The, uh, Aubrey has gone to, they're from Houston originally, and Auburn has, I mean, Aubrey has gone to Houston on uh, two or three different occasions to spend a week with them down there. Just, Holy cow. I mean, so it's, when I say she has this magnetic personality that just draws people in, it draws really good people in. And I think I've learned more about how good some of these kids are out here in the community just because of how they interact with Aubrey. That she's just this kid. Uh, you know, my, my wife works in a, a, a clinic around the corner, and she had a kid in the other day that said, hey, uh, you know, she found out, you know, the kid's a certain age and goes to this school. So she says, well, do you know Aubrey? And it's like, yeah, I know Aubrey. Well, I'm her mom. She is so fun. <laughs> I guess in the end, if we've done nothing different than just get the word out and kind of the inclusion piece of them being included in the lives and the classrooms of these normal kids, as these kids grow up and go into society, they're going to yeah, be more inclusive. And, absolutely. Yeah, the workplace needs to do a lot a lot better of integrating. And I think that starts in the classroom with the kids. Yeah. You know, the people that are in the workplace for the most part right now, when they were kids, there was exclusion. You know, you, you, you segregated these kids out and you didn't have any, any interaction. So I don't think they even know how to go about trying to make that happen now, for the most part. But now, since a lot of these schools are inclusive and they do include these kids in everything, you know, as those kids grow up and go into the community... If for no other reason, they'll be used to it and they'll be more progressive and they'll try to get these kids involved. And, you know, yeah, maybe they can't do anything but be a greeter at a restaurant or, you know, maybe they're limited in certain, you know, facets, but they can make it happen. And they'll understand, okay, she's got limitations, but this is this is something we need to do. You get concerned about being a dad in terms of uh, spending your time with your other two kids. So this is something else I've heard. You know, that yeah. it's, it's easy to let the one child take up all your time and not pay enough attention to your other kids. You know, it's, it. yeah, yeah, that's something that you worry about because 
you know, they don't have events, you know, all the time to say congratulations on your normal child, right? You, you have events like this to raise awareness for your Down syndrome child or your special needs child, but they don't have a congratulations on having a wonderful 15-year-old event. They just don't have those, right? <laughs> so all the events, not all the events, but a lot of the events that we go to are celebrating Aubrey. You know, my oldest goes to things that are celebrating all the kids, which is, again, still fantastic, and it's at a high school event or a dance or something like that. But it's not, hey, congratulations on being you. You yeah. are such a great person. So, yeah, you worry about things like that. Are they going to take it the right way? But And you have to have occasional conversations, you know, I, even with my five-year-old, especially her right now because my other one's been through it enough. We've had conversations, and she understands. Yeah. Um, but my five-year-old doesn't understand why we're always doing something for Aubrey. And, we, you know, we have to start laying those seeds of, you know, now you're five-year-old, you can understand a little bit more that, you know, Aubrey thinks differently and this is this is how her brain works and there are other kids that are like her and you are so blessed to have her in the family because you're going to learn a lot. You know, you, you try to get those life lessons through generically. Like, I don't schedule a time to have those talks, but when a comment's made or something, I try to take that time to say, hey, sorry, you know, None of us really, you know, choose that we're going to have a daughter because as great as my daughter is, she's just like any other kid. She has tantrums, and she can't control that sometime, and she's got different medications that she takes, and sometimes those medications wear off at the most inopportune time, and you kind of have to deal with that, and it affects mood and all that kind of stuff. So uh, you have to take all that into account, and we don't choose that, but you try to make sure that 5-year-old just understands that down the road, this is something like I, I'm honestly think my other two kids are going to be so much better off long range because they have lived this because they've had to take things they always have to think do I need to take her into account do I need to think about her what's going on with this and, you know they get to be kids it's not like they're instant adults but they're things that they have to take into consideration where other people don't well said and that's Brad Armstrong again his wife Holly And Alex bumped into them during a buddy walk here in our town of Oxford, Mississippi. And that's the Down Syndrome Awareness Group. And all month long is Down Syndrome Awareness Month. Across this country and here on Our American Stories, too. Brad's story, Holly's story, and their superstar daughter, Aubrey. All of their stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled Red, White, and Sacre Blue. It's written and hosted by Ted Bolliker. Sacre Blue! The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up to the amazement of the world, and especially the French, surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long ruled the world of wine. Sure, since at least the mid-20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines. 
but it's been a tough sell. Say hello to Gallo, hello to Gallo Wine. When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag. This champagne doesn't come from France. Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French. Take two. Ah, the French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed. Get rippled. American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noël Formeau. Something like the hamburger. Because the hamburger... It's not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking. It's greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged. There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines. Mighty France versus lowly California. In a blind taste test, judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs, they would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. <laughs> it's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a, a slap in the face. I was uh, feeling like I was born again. Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? <laughs> How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way. Different when I came from communism, where it was not freedom. <laughs> I have used American opportunity. Gergic was raised in a small village in Croatia. He developed a taste for wine at a very young age. To be honest, my mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine. And I liked when Gergich arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place. I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that people are trying to compete. One of the great things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen Lyon Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig. I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass. He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything. That's just that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gergich's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly. The French were interested to understand what was going on in California. Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder, 
given what he used to do for a living. I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery. And he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. And that, of course, put us on the map. Uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up to 1980, America has never been the land of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formeau headed west. My job was to uh, come to California for six months. And it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? an atmosphere of innovation. And because of that, America has been able to create many things that have changed, really, the way wine is made today. Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation, a process Gurgitsch helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine. It's extremely difficult in France, compared to here, that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules. Not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, we're able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all, but you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't do it. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine, but look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance. I think France has been lost a little bit for a while. Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions. I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment. What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California. Here I felt free and I could be successful, and that's why I've been doing here what I couldn't done in France. But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game. And that means better wine for all of us. This is Our American Stories, and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com. And the piece was called Red, White, and Sacre Bleu. And by the way, we love Sacre telling... Sacre Bleu! Sacre Bleu! And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise, and just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. 
And listen to all that we do by going to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding and credentialing, where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines, not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Stories. American Stories, and we've been doing a healthcare series called Better Health at Lower Cost, brought to you by the Stetson Family Office. And this is our second on Alzheimer's. And we start off with a man named John talking about his wife, Carrie, and what it was like dropping her off at a memory care center. Today is the first day of the rest of my life. I took my wife to a memory care facility, the place where she will spend the rest of her life. There was no movie-style ending to the conclusion to the first part of our lives. No tearful goodbyes. I drive the 15 miles from our home without explanation. I take her hand and lead her into her new home. I tell her that she needs changes to her medication that require her to stay a few days. She smiles, but I do not sense a level of understanding. We are met and greeted warmly by several of the professional staff who guided us to the room that will be her new home. We walk slowly. She stops several times to admire the artwork that punctuates the hallway to her room. She has always loved art. Over the years, she passed on that appreciation to me one of the many gifts she gave me the first 50 years of our life together. We visited hundreds of art museums around the world and shared our enjoyment of some of the greatest masterpieces. Along the way, she gets excited about the pictures of other residents' children and grandchildren. She worked with children all of her life, and today they are the one thing that can get her to rise above her disease. She loves them all. We reached her room and she smiles again with recognition of many of the things she has loved through the years that I have secretly moved here. 
her collections of Native American art, crystal hearts, and books catch her attention. She glances around the room, her eyes coming to rest on the many photographs of family and friends, living and deceased, and she beams yet again. They are all alive in her mind, and although many of the names are forgotten, the memory of their love and friendship is clear and strong. Far too soon, the support staff returns to divert her so that I can leave without her knowing I have gone. I leave thinking positively that we will continue to share experiences as we have in the past. I will just have to share those experiences for the both of us. I have memories of the past and hopes for the future, but Alzheimer's has taught me the importance of the moment. Nothing else really matters. Each day is complete with its victories and setbacks, and I rejoice or feel sorrow as each occurs. Tomorrow is very far away. This story is one that is told over and over. Same story, different people. This is just one of many of those whose spouse or family member has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. David Dolby, the son of Ray Dolby, an inventor and the man who created Dolby Sound, decided to take initiative along with his mother when his father Ray was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He's been involved since 2010. Uh, my name is David Dolby. I live in San Francisco, and I'm working on a number of different initiatives uh, to help accelerate the path to a cure for Alzheimer's disease. And I do this through our family foundation called the Ray and Dagmar Dolby Family Fund, uh, as well as through our family office uh, venture capital fund called Dolby Family Ventures. And one thing that struck me early on in learning about Alzheimer's disease was there were many gaps that were slowing down the pace of innovation and the rate of discovery and the impediment to allowing investors to gain confidence in opportunities. Uh, many of the largest companies in the pharma space looking at neurodegenerative diseases had been uh, becoming more reluctant to double down on investments. They were watching many failures in the space as uh, drugs proceeded into the clinic and undergoing human clinical trials with, with negative results. And so uh, really our, our initiatives are all in, in service to fill the funnel with drugs in the pipeline, being able to better characterize and identify patients, and uh, really give alternative, uh, innovative ideas uh, an opportunity to be tested. My father uh, was Ray Dolby, an American inventor. Uh, when he was in his late 70s, he uh, received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, and we quickly became aware that there wasn't a disease-modifying drug available to him or to anybody. We knew we wanted to spring into action, uh, and the, the way we knew how was to sort of follow in his footsteps of uh, investing in innovation and identifying uh, people that were taking risk in the space and working on important and challenging problems uh, and really try and understand what's the right set of questions to ask at each step along the way. What is our theory of causality of the disease? Alzheimer's disease is composed of a, a number of different factors which contribute to each individual's uh, resilience, 
as well as their vulnerability to uh, be affected by uh, bad actors that are either native to our systems with mutation or uh, infections that come about, or really the, uh, the cascading effects of other environmental factors or factors of aging. Uh, it's only been in the last uh, perhaps 30 or 40 years that we've started to fully accept that uh, d- dementia is not a normal part of aging and that it's something we believe we can reverse and that the way to uh, address this is to understand at what stage of progression is it still possible to interrupt these processes and ideally also reverse the effects. It is impossible for just one group to have all the funds that they need in the discovery of the prevention and cure of this disease. This is a project the whole world has had to gather together in order to find answers. The FINGER study, which is the Finnish Geriatric Intervention Study to Prevent Cognitive Impairment and Disability, investigated the effects of a two-year intervention, targeting several lifestyle and vascular risk factors simultaneously. The main aim is to prevent cognitive impairment, and secondary aims include decreasing disability, cardiovascular risk factors and related morbidities, depressive symptoms, and to have beneficial effects on the quality of life. Here is the lead researcher, Mia Kivipelto. I was the I was the person starting the finger trial. I am a physician, I'm MD. So for me, it has been always kind of interesting to work with interventions as well, really trying to move from observation to action. So I felt that now it's time to initiate something new. So I simply took the group and we researched money and started the finger trial. That was 10 years ago. I have actually my grandmother uh, who got Alzheimer's when I was young. I was a teenager. She was living in the same house where I was living. At that time, it took very long time before she got the diagnosis. So I still can remember the feeling. She, she was very close to me. And when she was, you know, changing her behavior, she was trying to hide things. She got a little bit different kind of personality. So that personal experience has helped me to understand how much Alzheimer's can mean for you and how important it is to try to find new means. Two-year multi-center randomized controlled trial with 1,260 participants aged 60 to 70 years recruited from previous studies. Participants were randomized into either the multi-domain intervention group or the control group. And the intervention was two years. And really, the results have been very encouraging. There have been earlier very many negative trials, but the earlier ones have been using single domain intervention. That means that they have been mainly focusing only on one intervention or one risk factor, for example, physical activity. So the results were very clear. There was a clear difference in cognition. So here the intervention group had 25% higher improvement. And finally, we can also see that even the risk for cognitive and functional decline is lower in the intervention group, and they have better health-related quality of life, even the risk of other diseases. Finger in Finger Study has come to mean more than its original acronym. Now, it symbolizes all hands and fingers across the world coming together to find the cure and prevention for this disease. The Cooper Clinic of Preventive Medicine 
located in Dallas, Texas, has some suggestions for living a brain-healthy lifestyle. Things like exercising your mind daily with crossword puzzles or Scrabble, getting at least 30 minutes of exercise a day. We have all become very aware that heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. But Dr. Cooper also encourages us to remember that what is good for your heart is also good for your brain. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Faith. And we'll bring you more stories about Alzheimer's because it touches so many millions of American families, and our scientific community is hard at work trying to get solutions. This is Lee Habib, John and Kerry's story, the Dolby family story, so many families in this country's stories here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we chat with authors of all sorts and, well, all kinds of books here, too. And today, we're joined by Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. And Sam, look, there's no better way to start a bar fight than to pick the greatest teams in the world. I mean, that's really hard. And also, you could have a bar fight Deciding what's a sport, what's a team. Talk about both of those things. And was it hard or was it easy? Because something's telling me it's pretty hard. I thought it would be easy. You know, I had those arguments at the bar and, you know, they always ended in just someone storming out because it was impossible to answer. And what I realized was that there's really no set criteria for how we define greatness. And no one had really done a rigorous study or tried to actually nail it down. So that was one of the toughest things I I had to do at the beginning was define greatness. And in the end, what I decided was that we have to be a little more specific about what a team is. A team has to have a certain number of people. It can't be two people. That's more of a partnership. I finally decided that five, five people was really the point at which group contributions and group chemistry was more important than individual performance. So basketball was really the smallest sport that I studied. And I had another set of questions, which was, how do you define greatness? And, you know, for me, one of the problems is when people talk about great teams, there's no real set period of time that we apply to it. A lot of people talk about teams that were great in one season or had an incredible undefeated season. But what I really wanted to study, what I realized was important is teams that had sustained their dominance for a long time. Because I think any team can get lucky. They can win a championship in one season or two seasons. But Really, to rule out luck completely and to talk about culture and chemistry, then you really had to set the bar at four years. And let's talk about some competing theories that are out there, because the name of your book is The Captain Class. Some people think it's the coaches. Some people think it's the management. Some people think it's that superstar player or the team of players. What led you to this categorization and your choice to study the captains? 
I was completely shocked. I, I had all of the same assumptions that I think everyone does. When I finally identified these teams, and that took years and years of work. I mean, I, I went through 25,000 teams, the entire history of sports since the 1880s all over the world, and I got down to 17 of them. And, you know, the first thing I looked at was talent, right? I thought talent would be the thing. And, you know, but I quickly realized that some of these teams, you know, they all were talented, but some of them had talent that was clearly average or even mediocre in some cases. So it wasn't that. The second thing I thought was coaching. You know, it's got to be coaching. But to my great surprise, there wasn't a pattern there. I'm not saying coaching isn't important, but some of these teams had more than one coach. You know, they changed coaches or, you know, some of them didn't even have coaches or had coaches who really didn't take an active role. And in fact, only one of them had a coach who was considered a great coach when their run of dominance began. So that wasn't the magic bullet I was looking for. I also looked at things like tactics. You know, I thought maybe they just had incredible, brilliant strategies that stood out above the rest. But again, you know, only a handful of them could say that. So that wasn't a pattern either. It didn't have anything to do with organization or even management at the higher levels. The only thing that they all had in common, and it was slap your forehead obvious. I mean, it was just so plain as day when I looked at it, was that these runs of greatness, these long streaks of dominance, they always corresponded almost precisely to the arrival and departure of one player. And that player in every single case was the leader of the team or the captain. And let's take a deep dive into your captain theory with the first captain I want to talk about and this great American sports franchise called the Boston Celtics. Bill Russell, who was he? Bill Russell is, in my mind, the greatest team leader in sports history. And what that team accomplished, I've never seen anything the likes of it. I mean, they won 11 NBA championships in 13 seasons. And people forget that. We talk about the, the Bulls, Michael Jordan, and the, the Warriors today, and LeBron James. You know, but what we don't see is that incredible consistency. The whole notion of a team that has won 10 NBA titles and yet is still hungry to win an 11th is kind of incredible. And they pulled it off year after year. And now, again, that streak began and ended with Bill Russell. It started his rookie season when they won their first championship. And the Celtics had never won a title before, ever. And the year he retired was the last championship of the streak. And the, the following season, they, they didn't even make it to 500 and didn't make the playoffs. It took many more years for them to return to glory. So this was completely bracketed by Bill Russell. And I want to make the point very clearly that I'm not saying that all you need is a great captain to have a great team. I mean, you need a lot of things. A lot of things have to work. But to me, the captain is really like the verb in a sentence. You know, the adjectives, the nouns, you know, the punctuation, all these other things might be more interesting, more memorable. But without the verb, it's not a sentence. It doesn't work together. And that's kind of the role these captains play to bring these elements together. And Russell was such a great example because Russell was absolutely on the court completely strange. He was a big man who did not score, which was very unusual for the day. And you know, back then, defenders weren't supposed to leave their feet, you know, but he would fly through the air and block shots, and he played this ferocious brand of defense. It was completely relentless. You know, no one had ever seen anything like that, and his numbers were, were not startling, so people didn't understand it. And, you know, off the court, too, he was strange. I mean, he didn't care about endorsements. He didn't sign autographs. He was very prickly with the press and, and didn't really seem to care much about the fans or being a role model or anything that we associate with 
with leadership. You know, in fact, he he turned down the Hall of Fame, you know, when he was inducted. He said he just didn't want any part of it. People thought he was an oddball, but really what they didn't understand was that all he cared about was the collective accomplishments of the team and all his effort, everything went inside that team. And inside the team, his teammates loved him, you know, and everything about him. They understood him completely and they would do anything for him. And on the court, you know, he understood that, you know, what the team didn't need was someone pouring in uh, baskets and getting in the highlight reel. They needed someone who would do all the unglamorous grunt work, every dirty job that needed to be done in order to help the team win. And that was his role. So he's just the epitome of great leadership. And he was un- misunderstood in his time. And, you know, I think only today we're really starting to understand the full dimensions of what he brought to that team. And anyone who was around during that day knows who Bill Russell was. By the way, he played at the University of San Francisco and took him straight to a college championship as well. When we come back, more with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. This is Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're back with Sam Walker, the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. We were just talking about Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, and Sam, you began the book with the words of this legendary captain, quote, my ego demands for myself the success of my team. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's such a great encapsulation of what you need to be if you want to be a great leader and, uh, you know, all the different ways that you need to think about your role and how much you need to, how hard you need to work and how much of yourself you need to just forget about. You you really need to kind of give yourself over completely to to the goals of of the group. And that's something that we're not trained to do. Business schools aren't teaching people to do that. Selflessness and self-sacrifice aren't generally words people use for most CEOs in America. We can, we can say that safely, Sam. Talk about the Coleman play, because one of the things about Bill Russell, and we're going to learn this more about some of these other captains, is this word called desire. And my goodness, anybody who played around Bill Russell understood what that word meant. So this is one of my favorite stories because I think it, it shows one of the characteristics that we all kind of know is important, but that we don't really understand why it's important. And that is relentlessness. And Bill Russell was relentless. I mean, to an extreme, he would get sick before every game that he played even meaningless games. He would throw up in the locker room. And in fact, if he didn't throw up, his teammates would say, Russ, you go throw up. Like, what's wrong with you? Uh, because he he cared so much. But the Coleman play was a perfect example of why this matters. Now, this happened in in his rookie season, and they made it to the NBA Finals in a Game 7 against the St. Louis Hawks. And this was one of the first Game 7s, and it was just a huge event with incredible pressure, and Russell was a rookie. Now, late in the game, uh, Boston had a one-point lead. It was about a minute left. And Boston got a rebound, and Russell charged down the court, and he tried to dunk the ball. 
missed up his time and he missed. And St. Louis got the rebound. And now St. Louis, a forward named Jack Coleman, had been sort of hanging back behind the play. And they quickly inbounded the ball to him at, at midcourt. Now he's at midcourt with the ball and a running start. Now Russell, who had missed that dunk, where was he? He was underneath his own basket off the court on the other side. He was about 96 feet from the basket, and Coleman was probably about 45 feet with a running start. But when Coleman came to the rim and to make a layup, now this is late in the game. They would have taken a lead. It might have been the end. This blur appeared behind him and swatted the ball away, and it was Russell. And he had somehow covered twice the distance that Coleman had in the same amount of time. I mean, nobody on uh, in that arena would have thought he had a chance. And he certainly must not have even known himself. But just that raw desire that he demonstrated over and over again in competition. The thing about it is that was consistent for him. And what we don't understand is that studies have shown that relentlessness is highly contagious. You know, if a group of people you know, that's doing something together thinks that one person in that group is giving 100% effort, a real maximum effort, all of them will raise their own performance. If you have someone in your midst like that who is relentless and committed to playing at all times at 100%, there are going to be serious marginal gains that you will you will see in your teamwork. And that's just not something we can quantify. So it's not something that we teach, but I think it's about time we started. We've all been around people who have that kind of drive and focus and what it does to our game. We raise our game. We raise the bar. And when those people aren't present, we don't even know where the bar is. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, it's funny because there are some emotions that are contagious inside a group and relentlessness is contagious always in a good way. Toughness is always contagious in a good way. If you show toughness and perseverance, others will too. And another one is emotional control, which is something all these leaders had. They had the ability to overcome really difficult personal circumstances and not just compete well, but compete at a higher level than ever. And Tom Brady of the Patriots is a great example of this. You know, a couple of seasons ago after this whole deflate gate situation, you know, he served a suspension, but he came back and played one of his greatest seasons. But even after they won the Super Bowl and this incredible comeback against the Atlanta Falcons, we find out that his mother had been undergoing chemotherapy, you know, and had been diagnosed with cancer that season. So he was going through that and he never said a word about it. No one knew about it you know, because he had the control to put that away and to play as hard as he could when he was playing and deal with it separately. And no doubt. And we're going to get to Brady in a little bit because it's such a fascinating chapter in your book. But let's talk about one more basketball player because I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs. Talk about Timmy Duncan. Who is he? He is a very unusual guy. He uh, was a great swimmer. I mean, really had uh, incredible talent, could have maybe even been an Olympic uh, swimmer. But you know, the hurricane came in and destroyed the local pool. And about the same time, his mother passed away. And you know, he had a, these hard knocks. And you know, he started picking up basketball and was very lightly recruited. In fact, Wake Forest was one of the only schools that really took him seriously. And he was a very skinny kid and just hadn't grown into his body. But you know, he he got there and really matured and became a really hot NBA prospect. But you know, I don't think anyone really thought that that he was going to become the the star that he was or that he would develop his skills the way he did. But the thing that's fascinating about Tim, there's two things I think there's so much about him that is instructive for leaders. But I think the 
the most important thing really is the way he played. Now he had the talent to dominate the NBA in terms of scoring, you know, or any of the famous gaudiest statistics. But if you look at his totals, it's really amazing. Some, some years he was very prolific scorer. Some years it was not his blocks and rebounds and other things were, were off the charts. He would change his position on the court and play different positions depending on the makeup of the team. It just showed that he had the same quality that Russell had, which is that he he didn't care what his numbers were or what you thought of him or whether he got on the cover of a magazine. He only cared about the team winning, and he would do whatever grunt work needed to be done, and he would change his role to fit. But the thing about Tim Duncan that really everyone should study is the way he communicates. I was completely surprised when I looked at these captains because the first thing I thought the first way that you motivate a team is is with a speech. You give a big speech, right? You motivate them with words. And none of these captains gave speeches. I mean, they did not like to do it. Some of them purposely avoided it. And I did not understand this. I didn't understand how they communicated effectively with their team. I, thought, I went right to Duncan. Because if you've ever watched Tim Duncan give an interview, you know that he is not a charismatic guy. I mean, he sounds like he's getting a colonoscopy when he's answering questions. He just has no emotion. He's, he's monosyllabic, right? He doesn't come across as a charismatic person. So how does he communicate? Well, he talks a lot, but it's a different sort of communication. He's always working the room, talking individually to one person, one-on-one, with incredible intensity. He stares, uses his eye contact and gestures and touch to communicate very intensely with people. And he listens as much as he talks. He doesn't lecture, he listens. And he has these interactions all the time and he has them in the moment, especially when someone has done something wrong or needs uh, encouragement. That's when he springs into action. And what I realized that the Spurs talk more than any team I've ever seen. I mean, they're always talking on the floor, on the bench, constant communication. And this creates an atmosphere where everyone feels like they can contribute, they feel heard. And they also feel like they have to account for themselves. And all the problems that team had were addressed in the moment. Nothing ever festered. This talkative style that they had allowed them to address problems in the moment to move past them. And that's why they were so good for so long. That's why they made the playoffs in 19 consecutive seasons with an incredible revolving cast of players and won five championships and had the greatest long-term winning percentage in NBA history. It was because that that whole climate that Duncan created, you know, allowed them to slot new people in, got them uh, talking and solving problems. So even though they didn't always have the best talent or certainly not the most money, they were the most dominant team of, of their era in the NBA. And we're talking to Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And what a terrific series of stats for Tim Duncan, wherever you might put him in the pantheon of greats. 19 consecutive playoffs, five championships, and the best winning percentage in National Basketball Association history. And by the way, if you like what we do here on Our American Story, speaking of, well, at least trying to raise the bar and lead the dialogue, maybe be the captain of the class in storytelling, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. Five best stories each week, you'll get them. Also, please send the link to a friend. If you like what you're hearing, please help us succeed in the market and in the marketplace of ideas and stories. We're working hard to get this out to the American people. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of hate. This show is always about, well, interesting, compelling, and good things. When we come back, Sam Walker, 
author of The Captain Class, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And for anybody out there who's listening, leading anything, and anyone who's a sports fan, but even if you're not, what a great discussion. We were just talking about Tim Duncan, probably the highest paid person to ever have written an academic psychology paper. Because in college, Sam, he co-authored one titled Blowhard Snobs and Narcissists. Interpersonal Reactions to Excessive Egotism. In the opening paragraph is the line, quote, simply put, we don't like egotistical people. So even as an undergrad, Tim Duncan got it. It just shows you the level of intelligence and emotional intelligence that these great leaders had. I mean, I don't know. I think I think that my sense with Duncan, I've never spoken to him about this. I know he's very proud of the paper, but I think that really was who he was and that that research that he did really explained to him that who he was as a leader, he didn't look like a leader that you would, you would pick out of a crowd. I mean, his teammates always said, if you walked into practice, you would never imagine that he was the leader of the team because he didn't, he wasn't the loudest voice in the room. He wasn't a huge presence a, a charismatic person who barked out orders. He didn't do any of the things leaders are supposed to do. What I found in my book and what I hope is inspiring in it to people is that, you know, you may not think that you have leadership characteristics. You may think that there are things that you just aren't good at, but really the, the truth is that all of the things that these leaders did were really about behavior and the choices that they made in the team context every day. And behavior can be modeled and leadership can be, can be uh, improved. Choices can be better. And when you start to understand what leadership really involves, and you start to separate out the myths, then um, you can see why someone like Tim Duncan may not be the guy on posters in every kid's bedroom, but he is by far the winningest and most effective leader of his generation. You know, his coach once said that Duncan didn't have an ounce of MTV in him. He even (laughs) agreed to be paid less than market value. Why did he do that? What was he thinking? I mean, his agent must have went, Timmy, what are you talking about? You want the maximum so I can get the maximum commission. What are you doing? You know, Tom Brady did the same thing with the Patriots. I mean, he would restructure his contract every year so that they could have more salary cap room to sign other players. I mean, it's that's what you do. He's made more money, I'm sure, than he ever imagined he would make in his life, and, and as most of these players have. And it's not an affectation. I mean, he cared about the team. And the team's result, that's where all his satisfaction came from. And it came much more than his satisfaction from having more money in the bank or having, you know, yet another supercar in his garage. I mean, that stuff didn't matter. And he's an incredible person. And, you know, I have so much respect for him. And I I do think that there's a lot of appreciation for him. But he's often left out of the conversation when people talk about the greatest players of all time. And 
I just don't understand it. I don't understand this Hall of Fame mentality where, you know, we separate out an individual from his teammates and say this person deserves special praise. I don't understand how any – I think they knew that, that their – whatever they, their accomplishments were, were all dependent on other people, that you can't really – divide a team into its important parts and its less important parts. It's really all one unit. Indeed. I want to quote from the book because it's such a good quote and it's something we all know and experience in any workplace. Quote, one of the great paradoxes of management is that the people who pursue leadership positions most ardently are often the wrong people for the job. You then cited a study of superstar CEOs and how as they lift themselves up, they often lower others in the process. Tim Duncan and so many members of your captain class, they did the exact opposite. Talk about that. Well, my favorite example of this is a woman named Carla Overbeck. And I doubt that you immediately remember that name. She was the captain of that great 1999 U.S. women's soccer team that won the World Cup. And you know, really dominated that sport for about five, six years. Just one of the best soccer teams of all time. And you remember Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Brandy Chastain, all the big stars of that team. But there's a reason you don't know Carla Overbeck, and it's because she did not care. She did not want you to know who she was. She had no interest in the spotlight whatsoever, any personal accolades. And she was not the best player on the team. She was a central defender. And she never did anything flashy. She never scored. She, you know, would would pass the ball off the minute she got it to one of her teammates, and she, you know, she just played with this relentless pace. But what was amazing about her is that I think she understood what leadership is really about, and it's really about service. She was incredible with this because she did things I'd never seen before. When this team would go on a long road trip to Japan or Norway. They would get to their hotel and they'd be exhausted and they'd get a knock on the door and they'd open it up. And it was Carla Overbeck who was carrying their bags from the bus to their rooms for them. Now, this is the captain of the team doing this. I asked one of her former coaches about this. I said, how is this leadership? How does this help her be a leader? And he said, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. Because Carla Overbeck would do these things on behalf of her teammates. And they understood that to her, all she cared about was the collective of the team. She did not care about herself. She would do anything for them. And this gave her a certain amount of currency, like a, a bank account, that she could spend when she needed to. And she would spend it on the field. Because the minute that someone messed up or was not focused, she would be all over them. Or encouraging them when they did something great. And it meant something. Everyone understood who she was and what she was all about. And it had great power when she did it in competition. It made the team better. Let's talk about football now and, and two teams in particular. First, the 1970s Pittsburgh Steelers teams. Who is Jack Lambert and why did you include him in this book? Most folks think of Terry Bradshaw when they think of that powerhouse Steeler team. Why was Jack Lambert the guy you focused on? But really the heart and soul of that team was his defense. I mean, it was an extraordinary, historically great defense. And that was really the uh, the unit that drove that team forward. And just look at the moment that Jack Lambert showed up. I mean, the Steelers had never won a Super Bowl before he got there. And, uh, you know, never. And, and now they're, you know, they've won more, I think, than any other NFL team. And, you know, they are, uh, they are really a creation of Lambert's tenacious style and his aggressive play and his relentlessness. Jack Lambert was a player who had an understanding of something that all these these elite captains 
knew to some extent, but I think he was probably the best example of it. They understood the power of nonverbal communication, of just gestures. They understood that there were moments where they needed to do something in full view of their teammates that would show their level of commitment and passion because that would transfer it to them and allow them to play harder. And Jack Lambert was famous, of course, for, uh, you know, he lost a couple teeth in high school playing pickup basketball and he uh, had a prosthetic denture that he wore in public, but he would take it off on the field. So they had a toothless, you know, mouth and he, and he would scare people. So that was part of it. But my favorite Jack Lambert story that I think shows you, uh, the genius of his leadership was that they were playing a, a game, and I believe in 1976, and they had won the Super Bowl, but they started one and four. People had written them off, like it's over for the Steelers, and they had to win this game. They had to beat the Bengals, and he wound up playing a, probably the finest game of his career in terms of the number of tackles. He recovered fumbles. He basically accounted for most of his team's points single-handedly. So it was an incredible game. But now in the middle of this game, he had uh, came into the game. He had a cut on his hand, and he bandaged it up. And you know, he went out there, and of course, the bandages failed, and the blood starts spurting out. It was all over his uniform and his pants. I mean, it was a mess. I tracked down one of the trainers and I asked him, "Why didn't you know you just rewrap that bandage when he came off the field, or change his uniform at halftime, or something?" And he said. You don't understand. He's like, Jack Lambert loved having blood on his uniform. I mean, he understood how powerful that message was and how uh, how much harder it made his teammates play and how much it intimidated his opponents. And uh, he, he did that on purpose. And Jack Lambert did all kinds of things that might seem crazy or unhinged. But when you listen to him talk about it, I mean, he always says, look, these were calculated acts. These were things that I did. Uh, you know, on purpose because I understood the power that they would have and I understood the effect they would have on the team. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that that team was so good and so consistently great uh, and won four Super Bowls in six years, which no team has ever done. And what great storytelling. And when we come back, the final segment with Sam Walker, more stories to come. Author of The Captain Class, this is Our American Stories. back with our final segment of our conversation with Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal sports section and author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. It's a terrific read. Go to Amazon.com and order it. You won't be disappointed. I had to read something to you, Sam, from quarterback John Elway. Of course, he played at Denver. And this was him talking about Jack Lambert. And by the way, he was a rookie. And here's what he wrote. Lambert had no teeth. He was slobbering all over himself, and I'm thinking, you can have your money back. Just get me out of here. Let me go be an accountant. I can't tell you how badly I wanted it out of there. And so you were talking about all of this nonverbal communication. My goodness, it didn't just fire up his team. It scared the heck out of the opponents. Talk about courage and how captains develop it. You know, a lot of it comes from emotional control. And, you know, we don't think of Jack Lambert as being someone who was uh, emotionally controlled. But 
like all of these great athletes, you know, he was not someone who got in trouble off the field. I mean, he was not someone who got in a lot of brawls and none of these captains, they were usually very quiet. Off the field, Jack Lambert was really kind of an introverted, private person. I mean, he was a big reader. And, you know, on road trips, he would he would often just sit in his room reading a book. I mean, he wasn't an outsized character. That aggression that he had on the field didn't translate to the rest of his life. And that was something I saw with all of these athletes. And, you know, I think it's a way of redefining courage because, you know, he poured everything into football and, and all of his aggression, all of his passion, everything. You know, he would, he would put it all out on the field. And, you know, when he wasn't there, he had this incredible ability to, to shut it off and to kind of return to normal and, and to, to, to be a quieter person. And, you know, that's a form of courage that we don't really understand. It's an ability to control your emotions. You know, being able to do that, you know, it's not courage in the sense of, of you know, running up the hill in a, in, a, in a rain of bullets in some big military battle, but it's a different sort of courage that I think is very contagious because I think people see you dealing with your emotions in that way, being able to control them, being able to target them toward objectives. And I think uh, it gives everyone a better understanding of, of how to operate in a team environment and, and what courage really is. Let's talk about Tom Brady at the University of Michigan, where he played as a collegian. No one could have imagined what would have been in store for him as an NFL player. He was a sixth-round draft pick and had trouble keeping his starting job in college. No, he lost it. I mean, he lost it. To Drew Henson, who was, you know, uh, supposed to be the next great, you know, quarterback, the second coming of, you know, Joe Montana. Yeah, no, he went through a lot. And, you know, um, the fact that he even got on the field was a fluke because he only got to play because of a serious injury to Drew Bledsoe. And it really shows you, you know, that, that it's very easy sometimes to not look inside someone. I mean, I think he had great talent, physical talent, and, you know, we'd seen many flashes of that at Michigan, but... What was really lurking inside him was incredible elite leadership ability and, you know, also great tactical mind and all those things that, you know, I think scouts too often dismiss. Brady was tough because, you know, Brady's accomplishments, I know everyone loves to talk about Brady and the greatness of the Patriots, but, you know, until I believe this season when they made another Super Bowl and and won eight, eight straight AFC championship games, you know, their record was very similar to the 49ers in that long stretch where they were very dominant. So same number of Super Bowls, roughly the same winning percentage. So I had a very hard time saying that either one of those teams was unique. So initially, for the hardcover, I didn't put the Patriots in. But later on, I, after they made that Super Bowl, I decided to put them in because I thought their record had clearly outpaced the 49ers. But the thing about Brady that stands out to me the most beyond his leadership qualities is his relationship with his coach. And that is something that is fascinating to me. And I said that coaches weren't the, the important factor, the crucial factor, and I don't think they are. But what's really important in these great teams with coaches is that they have a partnership with their captain. And I saw this over and over again. It wasn't a boss-employee kind of relationship. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady had this relationship that was unusual. It was like the relationship Tim Duncan had with Greg Popovich, too. It was very affectionate and there's a lot of of love between them but they knew how to fight and they would fight all the time they would come into conflict about tactics it was never personal it was always about how the team was playing you know and belichick would would go to team meetings and rip brady in front of everyone for mistakes that he made and 
Brady would take it and it would tell everyone that no one's above the team. But, you know, if Tom Brady didn't like the Super Bowl playbook that he was given, he would tell him to rip it up and start over. So that partnership, I think, was really underrated. And if you remember that first season Tom Brady came, he was a six-round draft pick no one thought was uh, anything. And Bill Belichick was a guy who got fired at Cleveland that no one thought had the chops to be a head coach. And together, they became two of the legends of football. But I don't think you can separate them. I don't think it was something they could have achieved individually. I think that partnership and their ability to work together was so important. And I think the message for coaches and people, managers and people who are trying to assemble teams with this kind of leadership model is that you've got to pick someone to lead that team that you can really partner with and that you respect and that you can uh, really treat as a peer. I think that's true. And there was a balance of power you wrote about and a mutual respect and that fighting wasn't a bad thing. And you equate the great captains and coaches to married couples. I was lucky to see a great marriage. My mom and dad would fight like cats and dogs and it was over right after the fight. And then I'd see them loving each other. And then when they disagreed, they'd go at it. And it was respect for each other. And they taught me how to fight which is a wonderful thing. People who can disagree and then carry on, you're giving them the greatest gift in the world. It's true. It's so underrated. And it's funny because especially in sports, there's this weird sense that conflict is bad. You know, there, there's, there are certain players, and the, and the thing about these captains was they were not easy to manage. I mean, they would push back on anything they didn't think was in the best interest of the team, whether it was something big or small. They would push back against the coaches, but they would push back against their teammates as well. They were willing to stand apart. And you talk about courage, and you know that's an underrated form of courage. It's the ability to just dissent from the group. And science has actually shown that, that there is a, an element of physical discomfort that comes with standing apart. So it's something that's not easy to do. And yet it's so crucial. You know, all the, the studies that have been done of team performance show that teams that really work together in, in close ways, as they do in sports, a certain level of conflict is essential. But there's a different kind of conflict. There's two kinds, really. There's a, a kind of conflict they call task conflict, which is really about an argument about process, about how the team is doing something or how they should do something. And there's another form of conflict, which is personal conflict. This is when the source of the conflict is really just, I don't like you. And there's a real difference. Now, all these captains, whenever they introduce conflict in their teams, they made a huge point to make clear that it wasn't personal. They never singled out individuals. They never blamed any one person. It was always about the collective, and it was always about the task and the process. And it's a huge difference. It's so easy to mistake those two things and look at someone who is creating conflict uh, as a bad thing when you're not really necessarily looking at why they're doing it or how they're doing it. And that was one of the real secrets uh, I feel like I uncovered, something I had no idea about until I really took a hard look at it. Sam, you wrote something fascinating about all of these captains, that they were more like jazz musicians than conductors, and that they freely improvised on and off the court to get the job done. It was one of the things that I had never considered when I think about teams, but there was a famous researcher named Richard Hackman, who was a Harvard psychologist who passed away a few years ago. He spent all of his career embedded with performance teams, teams that do things in real time, whether airplane cockpit crews or emergency room units or even symphony orchestras. And he would watch the way leadership worked. And what he discovered was so exactly parallel to what I found in these teams, which is that 
the leader's charisma and talent did not matter. It just wasn't a factor. They could have it, they could not have it. It didn't really make a difference. All that mattered, in fact, in terms of leadership inside a group is that every single important function of leadership gets done. That's it. You know, anything that needs to be done in order to help the team from a leadership perspective, as long as someone does it, it doesn't even have to be the leader. It could be somebody else. And on these great teams, what you saw was that these captains had established themselves as the person who would do anything. If there's a burning building that no one else wants to go into, they're going to go into it. And once that's established, then basically everyone on the team, whether a superstar or a bench player, understands that they're free to do their jobs and focus on what they need to do. And if they want to contribute to leadership, they can. They can do it the ways they want to. They can do the things that they're good at, whether it's mentorship or you know, being the spark plug or being a sheriff or doing something else to help the team as a group. And you start to see this happening, this beautiful symphony that starts where everyone does what they're good at and everyone pitches in and every single function of leadership gets taken care of. And a great leader will never feel territorial, will never feel unhappy that someone is doing a leadership function because frankly, it's a hard job. Being a great leader, you know, and sustaining excellence is incredibly taxing and difficult. And anyone who's doing it the right way will be so happy to have help and assistance from others. Well, and this book will help others and assist them too. We've been talking to Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and author of The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. Pick it up on Amazon. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. And Sam, thanks so much for doing this. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, Five Best Stories Each Week. They come in audio form and in print form. And again, all you have to do is give us your email address. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. The Captain Class, Sam Walker's latest. This is Our American Stories.